Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show that takes place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And on today's episode, we're talking about paradigm shifting games, at least for us. These are games that Jake and I have played that change the way we think about games. So we're just going to go through, it's going to be a much more, I think, casual conversation than a lot of our episodes, an opportunity for us to talk about games, to talk about how we think about games, and to talk about how a number of games we've played change the way we think about how games can be, which I hope will be an interesting, fun exercise to kind of delve into why these games stuck with us and why they made us think about games differently. I'll try, and I think Jake will try, to talk about the decisions in these games somewhat where that's relevant. And I will say in some cases, it might not be relevant at all. And that's just the rub on today's episode. Yeah, I'm interested to see where this conversation goes. We were supposed to come up with five each. I've come up with three so far, but I'm hoping that I'll be inspired by Brendan and maybe come up with two more as we talk. We'll see about that. Before we get into this conversation, let's just do a little bit of housekeeping at the top. First and foremost, uh, as is tradition on Decision Space, uh, at the end of the year, we rate every, or we, sorry, we rank every game that we played this year in a year's at, year-end episode. And we love it that our listeners can be a part of this episode uh, by submitting your ranking of all the games we've covered in Deep Dives as well. And you can do that by going to decisionspacepodcast.com slash rankings. We also have a link to that Pub Meeple ranker in our Discord. So uh, easy to find. You'll just compare a bunch of games against each other. Choose the one that you think is better. You can rank all the games. You can rank only the games you've played, uh, however you see fit. And we'll include that list uh, in our episode that's coming up next week, Brendan? I believe so, Yeah, uh, which will be really exciting. We have more than 40 people who have rated uh, some or almost all of the games so far. And if you haven't played all the games, like Jake said, that's okay. You can either just rank them rate them based on interest, or you can even take them out of the rankings. Yeah, I think there's like uh, a, a way to like X and say, I haven't played this. Yeah, which Either is way great. is fine with us. Yeah, and we, yeah, I can't wait to delve into it, reflect on an awesome year of games. Also, speaking of... I guess this is a tough segue because I was going to say enhancements, but there's really no ranking enhancements. We'll just be reflecting, but we've enhanced our Patreon. How have we done that, Jake? Yeah, so I found out that it's really easy for me to just upload a raw video of us recording, talking to each other, uh, to our Patreon. So if you've ever wanted to know what Brendan and I look like while recording this episode, in this case, today, you'll see that we're wearing the exact same outfit. Uh, but normally it's probably not going to be like that. We'll see. But yeah, so basically it's just a new you know perk for our Patreon supporters. We're so grateful for anybody who chooses to support our show in that way. It allows us to not only continue this show, but hopefully do bigger and better things in the future. Now you can see us talking uh, and also it's unedited. So uh, as people have already noted, there are times... Uh, Pretty big difference between the unedited version of the podcast uh, and the edited version that you're hearing every week in your podcast aggregator. The edited version's better, but you know if you like the unfiltered us and ums and seeing Jake and I laugh at each other, seeing our backgrounds. I have I have something nice in my background, but you oh. have to go to decisionspacepodcast.com slash Patreon to learn more. Well, that's enough about that. Uh, but thanks again to our patrons as always and. 
lastly, here in the housekeeping section, uh, we want to say just look forward to next week, the ranking episode, and then we'll have one more episode this year. It'll either be released on the 27th or on the 3rd. So we'll have one other planned episode. We're planning to take a break. We're not sure when that'll be it. And that's going to be a state of the show episode, kind of thinking about the past, present, and future of decision space. That's just going to be a time for us to authentically reflect on how the show's going. Uh, And we would love, again, for listeners to share some of their own insights about this. So if you're interested in weighing in on that, uh, we have a discussion thread open on our Discord, uh, and that would be the place to participate in that. Awesome. Well, thanks for letting you know what you think of our little project here. And for now, let's get into episode 149 of Decision Space. That's a big number. Yeah, it's kind of nice how that worked out with our year end coming on 150. But yeah, yeah 149 paradigm shifting games. Let's get into it. Brendan, what is a paradigm shifting game? Yeah, I think we kind of covered it already because this is such a, you know, a succinct small topic. But I think in this case, what we're going to call a paradigm shifting game is really just any game that we've played that has changed the way we think about games in some meaningful way. Okay. So it just... It's something that a game that we've played that's challenged our underlying assumptions about what games could be, what games should be, what games might be, uh, and really made us think through how board games can exist. I think a cool thing about board games for me and sort of playing them throughout the course of time, such that's like saying, you know, <laughs> who are you? You said that like you're 1000 years old. <laughs> <laughs> when I played Moncala. <laughs> in you know 1500 bc no but it's just that i think pretty consistently one of the most fun things about board games for me is every time i think i have an understanding of what they could be or what they are uh there's a new game that comes along and sort of says no there's there's so much more the the, the flexibility of what board games can be is is really cool uh so i want to talk about that how important is it to you that we only are talking about board games here well <laughs> seeing a list of games <laughs> i think you know decision space is ultimately a game a show about tabletop games right right but when, yeah when there's exceptions there's exceptions so okay great excellent moving on from that <laughs> my other follow-up question is like when I was thinking about this topic, and I think part of the reason I had trouble coming up with a good answer to paradigm shifting games is because I was really conflating this with our gaming histories, which is mm. another episode we've done previously. It's been a long time, so I don't think it's a problem if we're uh, covering similar ground here. But when I think of games that change the way I think about games, I just think about games that are like pivotal in my life and growth. Mm. Like we've talked about you know, Magic the Gathering was the game I played throughout my adolescence and probably changed the way I think about games more than any other. Is is this different from that or does that fit in here too? I think for me, it's slightly different, Jake. I When I was going through my list of games, a game that popped in my mind is Keyflower. So Keyflower is one of the first sort of strategy euros I ever played. Uh, right. I learned yeah, about that's it. That's like, a yeah. great example. Because like, I was also thinking about that, like the first euro game I played, like, well, that changed everything. Totally. But for me in this case, right, I think the reason why I haven't put Keyflower in my list of games is because when I first played Keyflower, I think it was it's so much aligned with what I wanted a game to exist as it like fit with my my like envisioning of, oh, I wish a game existed like this. Then I played Keyflower I was like, 
this is a game I wish had always existed. So it fit with my definition of what I thought games could be or ought to be or how they might exist, right? Um, not to be is way more of a value judgment than I ever want to ascribe here. But it just like, I played it and I was like, oh, I'm so glad that someone else made this. I This is exactly the thing I wanted to exist all along. And now I get to own it and play it all the time. But it didn't really change how I think about games. So there is some element here of like innovation and also of like, I didn't know a game could be this way. I think so. And I'm. we're also not saying, right, like this isn't an episode that's trying to talk about all board games and right, talk like about these paradigm are shifts the within biggest design parents. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like we're not going to talk about Dominion this episode. Right. Okay. As like a little oh, deck we changed everything. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Gotcha. All yeah. right. Well, I think that gives people a little bit of background of kind of what we're going off of. Do you want to get us started with your first one on your list? I would love to. So I think the place I want to start is Antoine Bowser's 2010 release, Hanabi. Hanabi was sort of a paradigm shifting game for me in a couple ways. I had played Pandemic first, which was the first co-op game I played. Um, and I'm not putting that here because I don't think it was really a paradigm for, shift for me to see a co-op game, but Hanabi was a real paradigm shift. Uh, this is a card game in which you're playing with other players uh, and you're trying to play a series of suits of cards in a certain order based on the value. Uh, and you're just trying to play cards in the right order. But the trick is, is that you can't see your own cards. You can only see everyone else's cards and you are giving clues uh, or basically, yeah, you're giving clues to your team members, your the other people playing with you about what cards they might have, but you have a, like a pretty limited communication set and how you can communicate in terms of the color or the, the suit that a card is or the value that a card is. And I think for me, the huge thing here that just blew my mind so much really is the card mechanism, right? I think of playing cards as just there's something that you hold that contain hidden information. Uh, but my assumption all along was always just that hidden information is for me. And Hanabi has this beautiful, simple twist that changes everything. That The hidden information is the cards in your hand are not hidden to everyone else, but hidden to you. Uh, and I think Hanabi sort of like a magic trick in a way. It's the kind of game that if you've never seen it and you've never played it, playing it is completely mind-blowing. At least it was for me and many of the people who I showed it to over the course of a few years. But I think as time went on, I played Hanabi less and less. I sort of, I'd seen the magic trick. It was a really cool thing. Uh, and I think it it changed the way that I think about games because it's just it's such a clever inversion of that sort of core basic assumption. Have you played mm -hmm. Hanabi, Jake? I haven't played Hanabi. And I'm You've as, never played Hanabi? I've played oh Hanabi and as you're think, sitting here talking, I'm trying to think of like, any game that I have played where like you're the one on the outside looking in. I played mm. that like phone app game where you like put a word up on your head, on your sure. forehead. And like, I mean, it's like people or something. And you're like, am I a musician? And they're like, no, like, am I a politician? You know? Yeah. But I'm trying to think of beyond that. No. But so paying it to a decision space lens, how does that change the decision space for you? I mean, is, is this more just like a novel inversion or like are there are there things there in the decision space that stand out about Hanabi uh, and this inversion that you pointed out? That's really interesting. I don't know that Hanabi is so much one where it's it's changed the way that I think about decisions in games so much. It's a pretty 
it's a pretty tight structure in terms of what sort of information you can provide. You're almost solving a puzzle with mm -hmm. everyone else at the table. You just have limited information. So there's oftentimes, you can, you can take risks in this game. Sometimes you have to. Uh, so one of the major decisions, right? And the risk is because you don't know what's in your hand, if you're forced to play a card, sometimes you're just taking a risk based on the limited information that you have. And you're also going against a timer. So you're incentivized to to make progress without without always getting more information. So it didn't really change the way that I think about decisions in games, okay. just more so the, the way that the structure of games can be. And I think a lot of the games that I'm going to talk about are about like game structure and components as yeah. paradigm okay. shifts for me. That's great. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a good segue to my first, the first one that came to mind for me, uh, which is Richard Garfield's Keyforge, which also changed the way that I think about the component of cards. And if you aren't familiar, Keyforge is a uh, unique deck game that came out originally in 2018 uh, with this gimmick or hook that instead of buying a booster pack of cards, you would buy a complete deck that was one of a kind. It would be generated by some kind of mysterious algorithm to spit out a deck that you cannot add or subtract cards from. That's your deck that you can play with. And theoretically, they're going to be balanced against each other. And it's the only deck of that kind in the world. No other yeah. deck with that set of cards will ever exist again. And it has a unique name and unique card art on the back. A ton of stuff, which I think, you know, while it may seem gimmicky and many people certainly have called Keyforge as such. I mean, Brent and I will argue forever that there's a ton of strategic depth and value to this game. It is anything but, you know, gimmick only. I think that's just some really, really cool stuff. I think it gets into interesting, murky territory with, you know, the recent emergence of AI uh, you know, I don't want to open that like can of worms fully for, you know, what that means for the future of game design. But what I what it did open my my eyes to uh, and, and I guess switch a paradigm for me was that I that not every single aspect of a game has to be, you know, intentionally designed mm. by a person like there's other ways and interesting things that can happen uh, when sort of like the pieces are are kind of set up and then are, you know, whatever, the algorithm kind of takes it away. Does that make sense, Brendan, where I'm going with this one? Yeah, no, it, it absolutely does. In some in some ways, it's sort of like a, it takes this sort of like variable random setup and then just extrapolates it to physical components that exist, yeah. which, and, is, which is really cool. And we've seen games since Keyforge has come out that have taken this even further than just creating a list of cards. I mean, Keyforge did in later sets had like enhancements where you could get a unique version of a card that's like powered up in some way. I, Soulforge Fusion is a similar style of card game that kind of allows you to mix and match packs of cards. And I think almost all of those cards are like in some way changed by the algorithm. So there's like thousands of possible cards you could get instead yeah. of like a hun couple hundred in a set. And, and and other, I think, less successful examples of how this could be applied to to board games and, and that type of thing. But yeah, I, I think that that idea of sort of uh, an algorithmically generated aspect of a game is not anything until I saw it in front of me 
that I ever considered could be a part of game and, and to have it be a part of a game that I, you know, have had just such good times with the Keyforge makes me excited about kind of the future of this technology and maybe other technologies in board games uh, as we move forward as polarizing of a topic as that is. Another cool thing about Keyforge, Jake, is, you know, most games, right, if I tell you to go buy the Castles of Burgundy, you just go buy the Castles of Burgundy. What yeah. you get is the Castles of Burgundy. When you sit down to play the Castles of Burgundy, you're playing the Castles of Burgundy. If I tell you, Jake, I love Keyforge, you really need to go play Keyforge, you can't get my version of Keyforge, right? Like my experience of Keyforge is unique to all of the decks I own and all the decks that I play against. So in a way, it sort of highlights this. Keyforge is a game, but it's a system. And we all own a piece of the game of Keyforge as it exists sort of like intellectually within the world, right? It's broken into all these disparate parts. Um, and I think for me, one like really interesting paradigm shifting element of Keyforge is just that idea of that like of how the you can never have the exact same experience of me of of the game as me right like even your experience of certain cards is going to be completely shifted because what decks they end up in with in the combination with other things is going to shift how you think about specific things and I think it underscores in a way and highlights and illustrates how I don't know just yeah how sort of innate and unique our own experiences of all games we play are even though Keyforge kind of like underscores that by giving us all different pieces of the same game. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I guess the last thing I'm kind of lingering on Keyforge is that I don't have as many to go on, but there's no other game on this list that at least as far as I know that the designer set out to like reimagine a paradigm, right? Mm, Richard Garfield set out to create a, you know, kind of a collectible card game model that was, that would fight against, push back against the existing collectible card game model of people who have the most money can just go out and buy all the best cards and have the best decks. So like, you know, I think Richard Garfield called it sort of the rich kid problem where Mm. you have an inherent advantage over somebody else and kind of set out to create a new way of doing things. We can argue about how successful that's been in Keyforge, but it is really fascinating, you know, sort of a designer explicitly taking on a very pervasive paradigm and trying to do it in a different way. So I think Keyforge for me jumps off the page as sort of a paradigm breaking, shifting game. Game. Yep. Okay. Awesome. So my next paradigm shifting game is a game by Reiner Knizia does release in 1995. This is not the first Kinesia game I ever played. That was Tigris and Euphrates. Or actually, it might have been Indigo. But this is High Society. High Society is this light auction game in which every player starts with the exact same set of currency cards that range in values from pretty small in denomination to quite high. And you're going to use those cards throughout the game to bid for points, more or less. You might also be bidding for negative points that you don't want to win the auction. Uh, and then the twist of key of high society is that at the end of the game, whoever bids the most money cannot win because they are no longer uh, within sort of the theming of the game, no longer really wealthy, right? Like they've, they've squandered their wealth. And to truly be a member of high society, right, you, you should still have some wealth there. Uh, I think for me, Jake, high society was a paradigm shifting game for a couple reasons. I think it's the first card game that I played that didn't really feel completely like a classic card game. It was a card game that was using cards to really accomplish a different type of game. 
in terms of it being a card driven auction game. It also had that has that rules twist where you could teach the the entire game. You just teach the whole game. You save in your back pocket the rules twist, and then you say that at the end, and it recontextualizes the whole game. So I think for me, the paradigm shift is of learning to play high society, of loving high society, of thinking it's so interesting and not being able to let go of it in my brain, is this idea that not all rules have equal consequence for the game state or the game objectives. That, That sometimes the best games are created or crafted by balancing just on one pivotal rule that recontextualizes the whole decision space and makes every single decision you make more nuanced, more interesting, and more engaging. And I it, that sounds obvious, right? But I think a lot of the games that I played growing up, games like Rummy or Spades or Risk, I, I don't know, almost lack that sort of that sort of design nuance in a way. And I think that this was one of the first games that I played when I really got into hobby board games that I sort of could fully grok that idea and sort of sit back and marvel at it. So for me, learning high society made me completely reconsider how game rules can impact how we play games. It seems so obvious. This is a big one for me. I love that. I think the way you talk about kind of like the rule of having different weight in high society versus a game like risk yeah you know like like the rule that sticks with you the rule mm-hmm. that as you're learning the game makes you excited to play yeah the way the way i heard you talk about it almost sounded like punctuation like mm. like in high society the rule book has an exclamation point um where in so many other games it's just flat it's just rule rule yeah. rule 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 and you need all these to play it um so I, I think I haven't thought about games in that way before, but I think that's like a, a fascinating idea and certainly one that we've seen Kinesia kind of master and bring to the fore. And now I think that idea sort of lives in a bunch of other games uh, in some way of like almost like I'm thinking of and when I was early on in, in the hobby, one, the first thing I did or one of the first things was just like watch every video shut up and sit down had put out. Sure. Yeah. And I remember their coverage of I think it was Marco Polo and I hope Voyage is a Marco Polo. I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but sort of the idea of like one of the best parts about that game is how fun it is to teach the game. And then you get mm. to the end and you say and everybody has unique player powers and then those mm. powers are just like crazy and like there a very different style of game than high society but it's like similar in like the exclamation point rule yeah like here we have a very standard euro game with this like massive exclamation point on the unique player powers which is yeah uh something you know in both of these are games that i love totally different games but i think you're onto something really smart here i think kanitsi is really good at that too that sort of design where he has these sort of workhorse rules that create a regular framework right and then the like the star rule the one that you just you can't wait to utter yeah I don't know. Cool. So if the, for me, High Society is my second paradigm shifting game. Okay, cool. I'm going off the beaten path here, uh, Brendan, and I'm going to take us outside the realm of board games Okay. to the realm of video <laughs> games. And I want to talk about a little game called Super Smash Bros. Melee for the Nintendo GameCube, I think released in 2002? One, right? Oh, dang I it. think it's 2001. Let me Google it. You're probably right. Two thousand one. Two thousand one. Damn, yep. dude. Yep. Nice. Okay. okay. Well done. I tip my cap to you, sir. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, 
Okay, so the reason I bring up Super Smash Bros. Melee is because this was a game that I loved as a kid. And and then a game that I, you know, eventually I got the Xbox 360. And then I, you know, I was not really playing my Nintendo GameCube as much. Um, but then I came back to in like post-college. Uh, I, I came back to my hometown and some of my friends at the time were like really into Super Smash Bros. Melee. Uh, and, and so that was kind of the point in my life that I got really into the other Super Smash Bros. games. But the reason I bring up Melee is because that summer or, or the next year, I was watching with some friends the Evo fighting game tournament Super Smash Bros. Melee Championship round. And it was this massively exciting event because like for the first time in eight years or something, a character other than Fox or Jigglypuff took first place at like a super major event. Okay. Uh, and, it, and it was, it's, and so I guess the takeaway here for Wait, me- Wait, what character was it though? Marth? It was, it was Marth, yeah. Okay. Th- so it was Marth. Uh, and I, I think I'm maybe getting the details not exactly right. Maybe, you know, a Falco or a Peach. A sure. oh, Peach had definitely won because there was a really top level Peach player at the time. But anyway, it was like the first time Marth specifically had won a super major level event in like nine years. Yeah. Uh, and it caused like basically the Super Smash Bros. Melee character tier list had to be like changed for the first time hmm. in eight years or something like that. And that right there is what is so exciting to me or so that I found so fascinating to me is sort of this idea that like, I don't, I don't want to say balance is like overrated, but it's more that like, we don't know what is balanced basically ever Mm. because given enough time in a closed system players, you know, in enough agency or enough tools, like this isn't going to be the case with, you know, connect four or whatever. But if there's like enough agency, like players will, continue to innovate find new ways forward and as long as you know you give people the tools and you give them an ecosystem to play in like they will find a way to like advance change the game develop new strategies so i think that for me changed the way i think about balance in games uh and it sort of makes me you know just a meat not I don't want to like say I discount out of hand, but you hear a lot of people just like say things online like this isn't balanced or like this character is overpowered or, you know, this end game scoring is like too punishing. You like, have to play this opening. It's the only opening that works. Right. It, it yeah. just made like I think because of that moment, like that game and my experience with it, it like honestly makes me more often than not just kind of like discount those remarks out of hand. I think, you know, there's we've talked about balance a lot and like there's probably elements of truth to it you know, probably like for a new player, uh, you know, or whatever. Um, But yeah, so that's why I wanted to bring up a video game because I think it's relevant and applies to this topic in board gaming as well. Interesting. So the specific paradigm shift was around depth specifically. Yeah. And and the ability for games to sort of, for the the popular assumption of games to be wrong in in some ways or to be more nuanced than presented. That Yeah, I think that balance and like given depth, Balance is always going to be changing. Cool. Okay, so my next one, we're, we're going back to board game land. I didn't even... This is another question, potentially. What's <laughs> you up? and board games. I know, right? What oh, the heck? Branch out, branch out. I mean, one does wonder if we should do more of, of an episode on video games at some point, but... Our 1,000 listeners all screaming like, no, <laughs> I, t- I talk about board games. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so in 2010, I, I talked about a game that Antoine Bowser designed called Hanabi. This like massive game that was this popular breakout hit that's still, I think, really played by a lot of people. But remarkably, he also designed another major hobby game that released in 2010, Seven Wonders. Talk about a, a banner year for a What designer. a year, yeah. Seven wow. Wonders and Hanabi. That might be one of the best years. Yeah, well, back then there were only ever. like two or three games released published year, every so year. It's like, yeah, they all became huge, right? Right? <laughs> yeah, totally. So Seven Wonders is probably the third or fourth board game that I played once I got really into hobby board games. And I think this is skirting the line, Jake, for a game where it's sort of like, is this a paradigm shift or is this just a game that's historically important to your experience of board games? But I think for me, there's a couple of things about Seven Wonders that set it apart and really did make it a paradigm shift for me. The So Seven Wonders is a drafting game in which each player gets a, a hand of cards dealt to them. They're going to pick one of those cards to play uh, to the ta their tableau in front of them, and then they're going to pass the rest of their cards to one of their neighbors. And it play continues this way until essentially all the cards are chosen. There's You're working to collect resources. You might be using those resources to build additional buildings in future round that might get you flat out points, might be working towards uh, having wars with your neighbor based on these sort of military symbols that you get, working towards maybe uh, a set collection game in terms of science cards that you can draft, where if you get enough of them, uh, at first they're not worth very much, but if you get these larger and larger sets, they can just gush points across the table. So one of the big things that was a paradigm shift for me about Seven Wonders is the sort of, I'm calling, I'm going to call this extractive game design. So Seven Wonders, in a lot of ways, Antoine Bauza, I believe, has talked about how he liked drafting Magic the Gathering, this way of playing Magic the Gathering where you can take booster packs, open them up, pick a card from them, pass to another player playing in the booster draft, and slowly through doing this, you collect a set of cards that that's the only set of cards that you can use to build your deck for that, that night's tournament. It's a, it takes a lot of investment from the players. It's not a casual experience because you have to have a fairly good understanding of the cards there in the pool. So Seven Wonders sort of like extracts this meta gaming element of playing a game of Magic the Gathering, a way you can structure playing Magic the Gathering. It says that could be a game. And I think that that was really mind-blowing for me in a lot of ways, or paradigm-shifting for me, to use the language of the episode, in this idea of you can take the fun thing about playing a game and make that the game. So I think we see like challengers do something similar with tournaments, that tournaments are intrinsically fun. So challengers just sort of says, yeah, we'll just make the tournament the game in a lot of ways. There's a little more to challengers than that, obviously. There's a lot more to challengers than that. Uh, but I think for I think me, challengers fits in to the can with fit that in this idea. category too. For that reason, I think that's really well said. Yeah. Yeah. So that just sort of spun my brain of like, what other fun elements of the structure of games could be extracted to think of a, a way games could exist? I think two other things about Seven Wonders contribute it contribute to it being a game that sticks out to me as a paradigm shifting game. One of them is now feels kind of obvious, but the sort of simultaneous play of games don't have to be something where you just take turns. For whatever reason, a lot of my game playing up to this point, you know, okay, it's my turn, I'll take my turn. Jake, it's your turn, you take your turn, especially in the hobby game space. So to have a game where you could play up to six people or up to seven people and everyone's making their decisions at the same time that were in sync, were not synced up by taking turns, I think really did kind of blow my mind when i first yeah. played seven wonders it's sort of like oh my gosh the like 
the number of decisions happening on a, at a given time on the table is so high. I think there's reasons why we that works really well in some cases and doesn't in others. But at the time, it was very paradigm shifting for me. Yeah. And the final thing. Oh, sorry. That really resonates with me too. Um, oh, sorry. Do you want to finish your thought? No, you go. And then I'll say the final piece of why it shifted the paradigm for me. Okay. That resonates with me in early Euro game, maybe the first Euro game when I was sort of in the phase of like, well, you're telling me board games are fun now? Yeah. <laughs> phase of my gaming was Puerto Rico. And that had like a similar oh, thing where it has like a leader and follow mechanism and i was like you mean i get to do something on everybody's turn like okay yeah <laughs> that's awesome i okay so i you've been shamed because you've never played hanabi i'm gonna take yeah. some public shame i've never played puerto rico okay i feel like you know what i have no shame and i don't think you should feel bad either you know i want to play hanabi i also you. haven't played seven wonders <laughs> i okay that i still can't believe how many times am I going to? Oh, my God. You should try, this try over the before. break. You know, I should. And it's funny that you said that about like the draft being and I can't wait to hear your final, final thing. But it's funny that you say that about the draft being like something that kind of drew you to it from magic, because like I'm the I'm the opposite. I'm more so then when I was like getting into games than now. But I, there's still like a back of my head a little bit. It's like eh, a draft is like not the game the draft is what you do so that you can like play the game of magic you know like I that's said, so interesting i felt i feel the same way about like for like decades like years and years of my life about running because i'm like you don't just run like you have to run to get in shape so you can play like other play sports yeah, yeah, yeah exactly like i'll chase a ball but i'm not just gonna go <laughs> run for the heck of it that's so interesting jake because when i learned about seven wonders i literally thought wow I can buy a game where I can draft multiple times and not have to pay for the draft every time. Yeah. It felt like Matt, it was, yeah, it was like the best, the, it was so novel. I couldn't believe it. And it was going to be a way for me to be able to draft with people who wouldn't play magic with me. It was like the best thing ever. Just make a cube like a normal magic degenerate. <laughs> I didn't even know about cubes when I played <laughs> Seven Wonders, but I should have. The final thing about Seven Wonders that I think contributes to it having this sort of place in my mind as a, a game that shifted the way that I think about games is it has a neighbor mechanism. So you care about wh who, what the player to your left is doing, what the player to your right is doing for a couple of reasons. One, you care for a conflict, that war mechanism that I talked about. It's very simple. You're just going to build cards that give you these military symbols. And then at the end of each round, you compare to your left and to your right, whoever has more will win a set number of points depending on the round for winning that conflict. And then there's another one where you can trade for resources that the player to your left or right has. And to do that, you just say, I'm using this thing of yours, here's some money. So it's not hugely interactive, but all of a sudden you do care about what just the player to your left is doing and just the player to the right. And I think that that's interesting. That's novel. I don't know that it's paradigm shifting, but for me, what was totally paradigm shifting about that was that it felt like the, uh, any given game of Seven Wonders, there were these little microcosms of games being played around the table where I didn't exactly know what was going on sort of across the way between the sort of three people who I wasn't interacting with, but I saw they were having fun. And to me, that felt so thematic of this sort of Seven Wonders is very abstract. It's very, very abstract. You're just collecting cards. You have a, a, one of the Seven Wonders of the World assigned to you. But to me, it felt like a civilization existing on the table where it's sort of like over here. Yeah, I know what me and my neighbors are up to. I don't really know what they're up to, but 
they're part of this world and they're collecting the same things we are and participating in the same thing. It just, it, it gripped me and it hooked me in a way where what was happening at the table and the shape of play was so different than a lot of the games I've, I had played before that where I sort of knew and had to know what everyone was doing to understand the game uh, and to, for the game to be played, everyone kind of had to always know. But Seven Wonders says, no, that's okay. Just you'll play your game and you'll kind of play it with your neighbors and they'll play their game and they'll kind of play it with their neighbors and your neighbors might be their neighbor's neighbors. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, it just, it sort of helped me think through how flexible the structure of board games can be. Yeah. You ever play Sidereal Confluence? No, but I really want to. Yeah, try playing that at like a full player count. And it's like the people across the table from you are like speaking like an entirely different language. <laughs> you just have amazing. no idea. Yeah. Oh. We don't have that kind of color cube over on this side of the table. <laughs> <laughs> What's that resource? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, I'm going to jump in with one that I'm going to use here because it's a nice segue. It wasn't one I came up with previously, and it's one I explicitly said I wasn't going to talk about. But to bring it back to Magic the Gathering just really quickly, one of the ways that this made me think about games differently, playing Magic taught me that like games are a toy box in and of itself. Mm. Like I love playing draft in Magic. I love playing constructed. Um, but like when I was a kid, my favorite thing, like I would go to Friday Night Magic lose immediately. It was single elimination back then, which is like single a limb. Yeah, it was just wow. single limb. And there'd be like at least like 40 people like every night. So wow. it's just like this crazy bracket. So you go play, lose right away. Wait, how uh, much did people pay to, to go home after one game? Probably like eight bucks or something. No, I think it was free. Oh, it was I don't free. remember okay. paying anything. Gets yeah. you in the store. Okay. Yeah, cool. I think yeah, just playing for like FNM promos or something. Cool, cool. No, my favorite thing is I'd go lose in the first round and then play like these like massively multiplayer games of Magic, right? Uh, and I just think that is something that maybe like I don't think about enough with this hobby now that I'm like an adult with disposable income and I can just like get a new game to play yeah. every day. That like unlike, you know, different forms of entertainment, like a movie, book, video games to some extent, like games, you can do whatever you want with them. And inside, you know, any given box are countless ways you can home, you know, uh, house rule uh, and, and just play in different ways that are going to be fun and satisfying. I think like, you know, for me and probably just so many other people, magic was the first opportunity for me to become kind of like my own little game designer in that mm -hmm. way uh in in playing with the structure of games beyond just obviously you get explicit tools to like create the agency you want to play with in magic um so yeah i think i think that fits into this point in the conversation as well so i'll, I'll choose magic as my third one and by that you mean right i can build my deck however i want to build my deck within whatever the card set is so i can choose yeah. to have different and, tools than other players yeah, yeah. And, and on top of the fact that you, and then when i have my deck i can play it in all kinds of different ways different like ways. you know mm -hmm. uh commander is like a a major format in the game now that was like player invented player driven yeah. i remember uh when i was a kid two-headed dragon was like a popular side event where you'd have like 40 life shared between you and a partner and play like a 2v2 i like playing that way yeah yeah, yeah it's fun. like that kind of stuff you know yeah uh, very cool i think magic the gathering also it's like natural that it gets mentioned in this episode because if we were doing the list of games that shifted pair like that caused a paradigm shift in games generally magic yeah. is absolutely on that list yeah if it's a top three it's on the top three 
It's yeah, it's just one of the most important paradigm shifting games of all time for basically what we talked about with Keyforge. So I'm glad I ended up here too. Yeah, the, this right. idea of like the game is bigger than box. Okay, back to Borgen Land again. Jake's cheating. Jake's uh. cheating. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I've covered a lot of old games so far, in, included in my list 1995, two 2010s. Uh, I'm going to jump to a 2018 release, and this is Wolfgang Warsh's The Mind. I love this when I saw this on your list. Did you? Yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. So this takes this idea that basically a lot of my responses have been this idea that for me, when a game really shifts how I think about games, it shift, it's doing so by challenging my assumptions about the structure of games in general. So if I thought I knew what simultaneous play looked like with Seven Wonders, the mind says, no, 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 you don't even know. You don't even know what simultaneous play is until you've played the mind. There's no turns. We're not going to be synced up. You just play, play the card at the right time. Interestingly, the, if you've never heard of the mind, this is a game played. It's also a co-op game uh, with a deck of cards with values one through 100 to your dealt a hand of cards uh and it won't be all 100 cards dealt out in a given in a given round uh you're actually going to play through a series of rounds in which you're dealt an increasing number of cards to your hand uh and then you all have one objective to play your cards in ascending order so if if i have the one the 17 and the 50 in my hand and jake has the nine the 25 and the 100, I, I should have written all those down. But basically, I have to play my cards. I have to play, you know, my one. And then Jake has to play his nine. And then I need to play my 17. And the only thing we have to go off of is our minds because you cannot speak. So you just, through playing this game, have to get a sense for about how long you ought to be waiting before playing whatever the next value you have is. So you're reading people. You can't even really... Depending on how a given group plays, you can't really gesture or make faces. You really are just trying to look at the quiet agony of those at the table yeah. and see who's hurting more. And then maybe it's probably their turn. But you're trying to sync up. Yeah, it's it's. It, I think it explicitly says like you're not allowed to give any cues like yeah. whatsoever. But that's also the trick of the game because that's literally impossible not to. Like we're right. all, you know what I mean? Like we're all so good at subconsciously reading the expressions and sort of like inner thoughts of other people that like without intentionally gesturing you you're still subconsciously communicating so much to the other people at the table you can also in the mind depending this place two to four people i think it's also an exercise in just like how much you can read in someone's eyes just like without saying anything just looking directly making eye contact and seeing you know how much you're suffering versus how much they are and if you should go uh the mind also so i think it's for me it's a paradigm shift because it's of that structure just the idea of okay there's no turns there it, we're not playing simultaneously like in the same concept as seven wonders so we're playing time. what's that is it just a real time it's game? just completely a real-time game yeah yeah but it's real time in a way that a lot of real time games aren't also Jake, right? Because a lot of real time games. It's just like, I'm going to roll this dice as fast as I can. Exactly. A lot of real time yeah. games are just like, whoever's the fastest is probably going to yeah, be right. it's fast. It, it doesn't you to actually play care one. about time at all. Yeah. You you might have a group where it takes an hour to play around at the mind because oh you're just God, all calibrated that. that way. <laughs> that is my absolute favorite the mind experience where you like get down to the end and two people have cards left and they're just both refuse to play it. So they yeah. do it for like full minutes of just silence and staring at each other. And as the third party, you're just like watching and just like, I don't know. It's like, like this is just amazing. 
I love when that happens though, Jake, and then it turns out that one person's holding the 99 and one person's holding or the 98 and the 99. So there's still the 100 hidden somewhere. And then they get it right after sitting there for two minutes, just doing nothing. Yeah. There's something amazing like that will happen in the mind where you just like navigate a run of like seven cards where it's like all within like 12 numbers of each other or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's like seven, eight, 13. 14, 15. Like, what? Yeah. Like, how do we even do that, man? Yes. I yeah. love that so much. So, I, yeah, I agree with this one. I think, like, for me, the paradigm shifting is not about like the timeless quality of mm. it. And I mean that in terms of like the structure, the structure, not that it's like a game that will stand is timeless. the test of yeah. time. Um, but it has to do with the fact that, like, there are like it, it's the best game I can think of that you can explain the rules in ten seconds. Mm, yeah, you know, it what is I mean? the like best game that exists that you can explain the rules in ten seconds. There's probably. basically yeah. no rules at thinking. all, and but there's so top, much game. Yeah, yeah, right. There's no rules on top, and it's all game. And like the other thing that's kind of paradigm shifting is you know a lot of great games, and you kind of like hear this sentiment around the hobby that like you know a good game designer like doesn't forget that the players are like the most important component or Mm, whatever mm -hmm. yeah and the mind is like such a great showcase of that too and how it just like makes the whole game around communication like there's a lot of games that have like limited communication as like some small part of it but but in the mind the game is just like to communicate with each other at all. Yeah. I think the mind and Hanabi both are sort of underscoring to on my list of paradigm shifting games too, the importance of this idea that, right, what you can't do in games is just as important as what you can do. But oftentimes with games, all you want to learn when you're learning the rules is what you can do. And I think that both the mind and Hanabi are great examples of where what you can't do is so much more important than what you can, you know? And that's yeah, fine. Totally. <clears throat> And actually, Kai High Society, too, you can't spend the most money. The most money, yep. Yeah, interesting. Okay, the last one I have on my list uh, is 21, a very simple roll and write game that also kind of breaks the rules of our uh, not picking significant games in our personal histories. But this was a game uh, that I picked up when my family was traveling in, I think it was, I think we were in Copenhagen and I stepped into a little game shop and I wanted to get something that like I could play with my family and like our Airbnb or at a cafe. And I was kind of directed towards this like very, very slight roll and write game. Uh, it is it, basically in the quicks line of games, even simpler than quicks with an even smaller sort of decision space in 21. Uh, you roll a handful of dice that are colors and you have colored boxes on your sheet and you have to like, mark off one of your colored boxes with a number in the matching die and you're completing rows and that's basically the whole game you're trying to like x out the most boxes uh and there's like almost nothing to it and that therein was where the paradigm shifted for me which was just the opportunity to play a game with almost no decision space like almost completely random over and over again where i realized that almost completely random like if there's a sliver just Mm. a smallest bit of of a way to like differentiate yourself from your opponents like to push the boundaries of that you know one to five percent is enough for me like Mm. i actually love that in games um of being able to like find the smallest 
edges and advantages. And I think that, you know, in some ways, this is something we've talked about a lot on this show, where sometimes our most interesting deep dive conversations come when we cover like the latest, smallest games, because it really gives us the space to like get in there, pick them apart. And I think playing 21 specifically was the game where I sort of like realized that about myself, where it's like, yeah, it's totally random. Like, yeah, like the a new player can beat a super experienced player. But as long as I'm getting better at it and I can take my chance of, you know, winning uh, if I'm playing, you know, a five player game from 20 percent to like 20.1 and then 20.2 and 20.3, like I'm perfectly happy. And that is enough to be a game that I love. Is 21 a game where you all have the same shared inputs too? So I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. What I think happens is all this. So you roll a dice, everybody can use them. Okay. But the person who rolled can re-roll them. Interesting. So you can, you, you get like that one agency point and also like, but you can't re-roll ones and ones are, uh, really important in the game basically the boxes will all have a number in it and you can only enter a number that equals that or smaller Mm. so like hit you want to hit like bullseyes as much as possible but if you can't take anything or choose not to you have to like cross off your biggest number available to you um so there there's like there is decisions to me be made absolutely and like when do i put this one into a five so I can just like keep moving on. As soon as somebody finishes, that's it. Yep. Uh, so you're there's a lot to like weigh there, but also there's a lot of like hell yeah, blue five, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> this is a complete aside, but I think you love games where everyone has the same shared input and then makes their own decisions based on those input. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think yeah. that's something I definitely get get into. Interesting. Okay. So that's 21? Yeah, it's called 21, like spelled out. A roll and write game. Very cool. Okay, my final paradigm shifting game is a game that we covered on Decision Space in episode 59. In my mind, that's this is not one of the early games we covered, but in it's history, weird when it we is. think of, when I like like we reference like the CT win episode recently. Yeah. Like I was I was actually having dinner with some friends who were like back in town and someone was asking about the podcast and not a big board gamer. Uh, so I, I was thinking like, oh, I'm going to recommend the CT win episode. And that's like episode like what? 60 67. Uh, yeah. I'm like 150. It's like I need to maybe something to think about more and good entry point accessible episodes. Yes, yes, yes. But okay. this game. Again, episode 59 uh, (laughs) came out in 2016, and it's Uwe Rosenberg's A Feast for Odin. So the reason why A Feast for Odin was a paradigm-shifting game for me, and this is a game that I first played in prepping to cover it on the podcast, so that I first played in the last few years, I think it has a lot to do with the scope of the game and also what the game asks of you in terms of the obstacles it puts in front of you so a feast for odin if you don't know is this massive worker placement game that offers over 50 worker placement locations it gives you just gobs of workers that you get to gush out on the table and you also have this player board in front of you that you're just trying to fill up with uh differently shaped pieces uh that are just tiles that it's, it's kind of like people call it viking tetris it's not quite that but it's something along those lines and I think for me, the biggest thing about A Feast for Odin is I had always thought of really heavy strategy games as a necessary component of them being that they're just 
complex and chewy in a way that you produce this chew through having really difficult obstacles to overcome that a lot of the struggle in the game is struggling against the mechanisms that are going to constantly push back against you as a player or you're going to be constantly pushing up against one another uh, at the table in terms of conflict and i think interestingly a lot of a feast for odin there is some of that you're you're competing for sort of limited shared player locations but none of it is all that complicated or all that crunchy it's just big and delicious the game also does put up some sort of some obstacles that you need to overcome there's a certain amount of needing to sort of feed your viking clan every round uh, that is sort of inspired by one of Uwe rosenberg's other games agricola but in a feast for odin the game kind of gives you everything that you would need to be able to accomplish that goal at the start of the round uh, so I think we actually titled this game, this episode, The Feast is a Lie or something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, and for me... Classic title. Yeah, it's a good title. It's, it, that to me, uh, Jake made it, but that to me is almost the, the paradigm shift is sort of how games can can sort of trick you into thinking you're overcoming some huge obstacle while also kind of being the wind in your sails that you think you're pushing yourself there. It's just a nice little like twist to the game where it sort of says, no, like you're not here to struggle. You're here to celebrate, right? Like a feast for Odin is kind of like the chance of you getting to like write the song of your like Viking clan without a lot of difficulty in terms of doing that. Like the difficult thing is doing the puzzle way more efficiently than everyone else at the table without any huge obstacles to bump up against in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. No, that's well said. Yeah. If you want to emigrate, go for it. If you want to explore, go for it. If you want to yeah. go whaling, go for it. Like you're you're probably gonna have a pretty good time doing any of those things. Yep. You might not win the game, but you're gonna like advance no yeah. matter what. Yeah. And I think that flexibility and that openness is really what the paradigm shift was for me. Yeah, so that's really interesting because I think you're right uh, in that so so much of like heaviness gets conflated with like struggle, mm-hmm. right? And here it's like not; nah, it's just bountiful progress. Yeah, something yeah. like and to give an example of something like that, right? Like barrage is a good example where I'm constantly have nothing i'm just struggling to ever have the resources i need to do anything there are times in that game where you're like oh my god i'm like i'm doing it it's happening for me (laughs) yeah but yeah you're right and it feels like when you're going into that game you're like stealing yourself for like this is gonna be a big challenge yeah everybody's gonna screw me over as much as possible in barrage yeah 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 in barrage we're in in feast road and it's just like ooh, what am i gonna choose to explore this time yeah in some ways it's like two diametrically opposed awesome heavy game yep cool well said Brendan, this was a really fun conversation about paradigm shifting games. Do you have any final thoughts? I had a final question. Okay. Did you consider, and I don't, we don't have to like name names here, but did you think when you thought about paradigm shifting games, did you think of like, I realized I don't like this type of game when I played X. Mm. Cause I was kind of thinking about that too. Like I was like, I, I don't t- tend to like, I could almost say like, uh, cosmic encounter for me was like and that was when i realized i probably don't like strictly speaking negotiation games interesting you know it's just like so psyched I'm like yes this is like the greatest game ever according to shut up and sit down and finally i'm gonna play it and then I'm like oh oh this is this oh. was not for me yeah. <laughs> yeah interesting i think for me that didn't come to mind as much because i was trying to think about not necessarily just taste but how 
I think yeah. about how games could exist. Are we covering Zubatis next year? Next year? Yeah. Oh, like as a deep dive? Like yeah. more Zubatis coming? Yeah. I don't think the good people at Bite Wings Games want me to talk about Zubatis anymore, but I'm sure they'd be delighted for you too. We'll balance each other out. <laughs> yeah, maybe you and Jared cover it. <laughs> no, we gotta, I need your perspective. You've, okay, you say this, but both times we played it, you were having a blast. I was so mad that second time <laughs> we played it, dude. The first time, the first time I was like delighted because I was like, now everyone has to see what I see. <laughs> and then we all loved it and wanted to play it again. And yeah. Like, what and then is the second time on? we played, I was just so pissed. I was went full like hostile. Like, I, you know, I was like, I'll rule with fear. And that went horribly as, as you would and expect. My most recent play, I completely misjudged who was winning to the point that I, I've never misunderstood a game of State War. So. So TBD. Anyway, yeah. anyway uh, that has nothing to do with paradigm shifting games. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, I think that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Brendan, thanks for bringing the topic to us. Listeners, thank you so much for sticking with us to the very end of this episode. As always, uh, we so very much appreciate you. If you want to leave us a review, we haven't had one in a while. That goes a long way. Or just tell somebody you know about our show. Like We want to keep growing uh, and you can obviously help us do that. So thanks so much. And also, if you just have a few spare minutes, as a reminder, we'd love for you to participate in our annual rankings. So go to decisionspacepodcast.com forward slash rankings. And I think, Jake, let's just leave it there. Great. Right? Yeah. Okay. Sounds Until good. next and we time. Should, and also, we should oh. thank Embry for intro and outro song, Reach Out. And thanks for listening and have a great week. Bye, y'all. Bye.